You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tim, are you wearing your spring heels in case you have to bolt from this place? I always have my spring heels on. <laughs> Someone got a kick out of your uh, Bigfoot Israel, and he's wearing spring heels or something like that. Whatever that, that statement was you made, somebody got a big kick out of that, as they well should. You need to draw it. <laughs> <laughs> I may, in fact. I don't know if everybody's been noticing, but I've been doing the art for the spring heeled episodes. Presumably, that will continue for this episode. So if fairies wear boots... And spring heel jacks wear spring heels. There is a precedent for cryptids and footwear. Indeed. In big feet. <laughs> Indeed, there is. There actually is. In fact, one of the few fairy artifacts that exist yeah. is a shoe. Oh, yes. I think I've, I've heard about that. <laughs> it's a tiny little shoe, that, but it, it's... It's like not made of anything that like a human... Like it's made in such a way that there's... It, it has like tiny little stitching that, that uh, presumably is... Mouse made? Very difficult for a human to do. <laughs> Welcome to Strange Familiars. I'm your host, Timothy Renner, along with my co-host, Allison. How are you doing? I'm fine. If you've seen something strange, something paranormal... A cryptid like Bigfoot, a ghost, a UFO, or if you know of a story you think we should cover, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. So as I hinted last time, my new book with Joshua Cutchin, Where the Footprints End, is available. And it was indeed available. I, th I think I had hinted last time, like, I think it'll be available. It was available by the time last episode came out, but it is absolutely available now. It's on amazon.com. You can also order it from your local bookstore. I will have copies very soon if you want signed copies. Unfortunately, to get a copy signed by me and Josh, you're going to have to do some kind of mail order kung fu and buy a copy from me, have it signed, send it to him with some postage. Then he'll personally drive it back up here, and then we'll send it out. <laughs> One at a time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a little difficult, especially with all the paranormal Conventions, Con yeah. yeah. Conferences being canceled and stuff. You Otherwise, know. you would have seen them at the same time. Yeah. But you can get signed copies from me. I'll have them shortly, hopefully later this week. I'm super excited about this book. It debuted at number one in its category on Amazon, which is Unexplained Mysteries, the first day. It's dropped a bit since then, but hopefully we can get it back up there again. Where the Footprints End, 
High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 1, Folklore. This is one of two volumes. There's so much weirdness associated with this phenomenon that we did two volumes, and they're not thin. No, that isn't, it's not like a magazine by any stretch. No, this is the thickest book that I've put out yet. I mean, obviously, Josh did a lot of the writing in it. So just to run down what's in it, we have, the chapters are, uh, we have an introduction in which I go over the Fayette County, Pennsylvania, 1973 incident. If you're not familiar with it, it is bonkers. It's the best example of weirdness in Bigfoot, like single example that we could find. That's and where why is Fayette County? It's out west in western PA. Oh, it's in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I sourced through multiple sources the most complete version of the story I could, which uh, I don't think I've read You know, a complete source. I've read it piecemeal. You know, mm-hmm. Some books had some of the information. Some books had other information. So the book starts out with that because, like I said, that's the, the single best example of one of these bonkers cases. It's got a UFO along with two Bigfoot. It's got Bigfoot being shot and they do not react to being shot by a high-powered rifle. It's got baby crying and bad smells and all this other weird stuff, including a man in black-like incident that follows with the witness afterwards. It's a very, very strange account. And you illustrated it as well? I saw someone on Instagram ask if you would have original illustrations in this. There is, I did a frontispiece, full page, Mm -hmm. and then I did mastheads, throughout some masthead illustrations and then a spot illustration at the end a tiny spot illustration at the end of every chapter so it's not as fully illustrated as don't look behind you my last book because this is it's a joint project it mm-hmm. just felt like uh, we should rely more on on the text for this one and, and but uh, the, i do have illustrations in there the frontispiece is pretty cool i have to say and the cover is one of the best bigfoot drawings i've ever done i think i'm very very proud of the cover Chapter one, you guys have heard me talk about Delta, Pennsylvania. Maybe you've seen my presentation I do in the area called A Circle of Strangeness. And I think I read the original version of this chapter as a patron episode one time. I just read it, uh, the version that came in Woodknock Volume 3. But I've expanded this a good bit for this book. So it's the company they keep. It has to do with Delta, Pennsylvania and all the weirdness around there. Second chapter is Wildnisgeist. It's Josh's essay on how the Bigfoot phenomenon is very much like poltergeist phenomenon. Then he does a chapter on fairies, then a chapter on aliens, as both of these are as regards to Bigfoot. I wrote a chapter on gifting, which includes some of the information we did on the Belsnickel episode way back last Christmas, but a lot of other pertinent information as regards Bigfoot as well. Josh did chapters on witches and ghosts, and I finish up the book with a chapter on women and white spirits and their relationship to Bigfoot. So it's over 300 pages. I feel like we're doing something different with this in cryptozoology. I I don't feel like this has been done in cryptozoology before. Volume 1 looks at, there's a lot of folklore incidents. There's a lot of Bigfoot. There's, you know, we talk about the folklore, and then we talk about Bigfoot sightings that correspond with this folklore stuff. Volume 2, we're roughly calling evidence. There's folklore in Volume 2, there's evidence in Volume 1, but basically we've broken it up. So Volume 1 primarily talks about folklore and how these different folklore entities all over the world sort of act like Bigfoot and how Bigfoot corresponds to these things. And then Volume 2, we have a lot of the things like disappearing trackways and tree breaks and, and Bigfoot signs and disappearing evidence and things like that are all in Volume 2. But uh, I hope... Everybody will like it. It's been a labor of love. It's been something that Josh and I have just poured our hearts into. And it's got me excited about Bigfoot again. Uh, as <laughs> Did I've, it really ever wane? <laughs> um, you just switch focus. I was saying that this was going to be my mic drop for Bigfoot, mm-hmm. uh, th- these two books. And now I don't think it is. Because as I've been rereading it and, you know, we we go through the different proofs and the different editions and make corrections and so forth. So I end up rereading the book several times Mm -hmm. before we're putting it out. And as I've been rereading it, it's gotten me excited again about the topic. So I'm no longer saying that this will be my mic drop on Bigfoot. I, I will be doing more something a little bit different, I think, as well, maybe related to where the footprints end. So we'll see. But uh, definitely Where the Footprints End, Volume 1, is out now. You can find it on Amazon. You can look up my name. You can look up Where the Footprints End. You can look up Josh Cutchin. You'll find it under all those things. If you want to get copies from me directly, 
email or I will have them in the Etsy shop as soon as they come in. You can get signed copies there. And now we continue with spring Jack and other prowling ghosts. This is part four. Is it really part four? Already? This is part four. <laughs> this guy gets around. He does. He really does. It's almost like it's more than one person. One would think. Spanning, what, over 60 years? and <laughs> Oh, it's a century, I think. Oh, is it a by century? The, yeah, because by the time we get from... I mean, it technically starts in the late 1700s. Not spring Jack, but these other prowling ghosts. And then we end right around 1900, I believe. We're going to pick up in 1882. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes, you might want to go back and check them out because basically we're going chronologically through the sightings that I could find through the different articles and so forth that popped up in the British papers of the sightings of these various prowling ghost entities. Prowling ghosts roughly defined as ghosts that were not associated with one particular cemetery or one particular haunted house. They would move around and scare people. And many of them seem to be people in costumes, but there's also some other weird stuff associated with them. So it's worth checking out, I think, episodes one through three if you hadn't yet, or you can start with this one if you'd like. Once again, we're starting in 1882. spring Jack again appeared in the summer of 1882. This is from the Lancaster Gazette, and I'm saying Lancaster like we say it here. <laughs> Lancaster Gazette, August 23rd, 1882. Springhill Jack at Deptford. A few evenings since, under one of the arches of the Southeastern Railway, near its junction with the Greenwich Line, a most lonely spot in Woodpecker Lane, leading from New Cross to Rotherite, a person who observed enveloped in a sheet which passed over a lighted lamp on his head, in imitation of the celebrated Springhill Jack, who was such a terror for children in the suburbs of the metropolis many years ago. Upon being approached, however, by some men, he prudently disappeared his evident intention being to frighten women and children. So how is he described again? Well, there's a lot of um, explanation of precisely the spot that he was... (laughs) He was enveloped in a sheet which passed over a lighted lamp on his head. So he had a lamp on his head and put the sheet over that seems like a fire hazard um, that's what i'm thinking mm-hmm. like oil lamps at the time that's that's a Plus the, fire waiting to happen when you potentially asphyxiate yourself <laughs> possibly i don't know very strange very, he, he very just strange. wants to frighten women and children he can't be deterred <laughs> the sightings are more spaced out now they're becoming kind of fast and furious before they, i was yeah going and this one sort of alludes month. to that remember how much fun it was years yeah. ago when spring hill jack would just scare the The next one I found was February 6, 1883. The Dundee Courier and Argus reported the return of Springheels to the Dundee region. If you remember Springheels, he was the Scottish equivalent of Springheel Jack. They were calling him Springheels. Was there some reason they didn't want to use the word Jack? Uh, Probably didn't want to use the same one. They didn't want to copy off the, the Brits. Yeah. A ghost at large in Dundee, alleged serious results. Two or three weeks ago, we drew attention to the remarkable doings of an individual who sustained the role of a ghost and deported himself in the neighborhood of the Blackness Quarry. And now we have a chronicle of a series of similar escapades perpetrated over a large area in the northern and eastern parts of the town, and from which some cases, it is alleged, very serious results have ensued. The publicity given in our column to the matter was the means of drawing to the vicinity of the Blackness Quarry large crowds of young men, boys, and girls nightly for about a week, all eager to see his ghost ship, for whom, judging from their demeanor, they intended a warm greeting. But the ghost evidently did not desire company of this description, for he made no manifestation of himself, and the ghost-seekers had each evening to return home without obtaining a glimpse of the pretending unearthly visitant. Within the past week or ten days, however, a series of startling reports have come from the opposite end of town, from which it would appear the ghost had changed his quarters. The district in which he is now holding his revels extends from Cleppington to the Ferry Road, and a large number of reports are given as to his actings in this large area. Judging from these, it seems that he chiefly affects the early morning for his manifestations, although his midnight visits are also pretty numerous. Among other reports, it is stated that a Broughty Ferry butcher 
while proceeding along the ferry road one dark night last week, was startled by the sudden appearance of a figure clad in white against the wall of the opposite side of the road. Recovering his self-possession, the butcher crossed the road in the direction of the seeming specter, which, however, disappeared as suddenly as it had disclosed itself, appearing to the astonished butcher to go through the stone wall. Another occasion, it is said, his ghost ship suddenly appeared to a scavenger who was employed emptying an ash pit in the northern part of the town by placing his hand heavily on the man's shoulder. The scavenger, however, being of good metal, promptly adopted a bellicose attitude, which so alarmed the ghost that, deeming discretion the better part of valor, he beat a hasty retreat. He was twice seen by one gentleman in North Wellington Street last week, on one occasion between one and two o'clock in the morning. On Thursday night, he appeared in Raglan, Kenbeck, and Craigle Streets, and he has been observed taking a constitutional in a field to the north of the... <laughs> <laughs> Arworth Road on the farm of West Craigie. It is also stated that he has visited Lokes, where a young fellow who, on recovering from his surprise, determined to know whether apparitions were acquainted with mundane matters, asked him the time of day. <laughs> but the ghost, having given a bovine roar as a reply, dashed off at the top of his speed. The most serious of the reports have, however, yet to be mentioned. It is not to be supposed that everyone would take the sudden appearance of even a sham ghost as a natural event, and it is therefore not surprising that in a number of cases the consequences which have ensued have been of a somewhat alarming type. The ghost has frequently shown himself in the Merrifield district to servants and to several young boys and girls, most of whom had suffered severely by the shock to their nervous systems and a young lady who was walking out the Arborth Road in company with her sweetheart was thrown into such a state of nervous excitement on the ghost making his appearance from behind a tree that she had to be assisted home. A girl is reported to have been assaulted and had some of her clothes destroyed by the ghost in Crescent Street, and a young lad employed in one of the works in the east end of town was so frightened by seeing the ghost on coming out of a close after awakening some persons one morning last week that he has been confined to bed ever since through a series of fits. The ghost may be described as being rather tall and is generally dressed in a long, dark cloak, although occasionally he suddenly assumes a luminous appearance, supposed to be due to the inside of the cloak being lined with cloth dipped in phosphorus and exposed to view. Several yards of crepe are also suspended from his hat, and throughout the east end of town he is, from the rapidity of his movements, popularly teamed spring heels. He is said to belong to various orders of society, some stating that he is a student, and others that he belongs to the family member of one of the manufacturing firms in town. As an explanation of the affair, it is set forth that the escapade is the result of a bet, but whether it be so, or whether it be carried on as a piece of gratis mischievous folly, all must sincerely desire that the foolish perpetrator should be speedily brought to task, as such conduct should not be allowed to be indulged in with impunity. On Wednesday last, a party of about half a dozen young men thoroughly equipped with all appliances for determining whether his ghost was fish, flesh, or fowl, went out on a search expedition. But although they explored a large district, they were not successful in their efforts. We understand, however, that they intend to persevere in the search until they run their game to earth. So another bet. They're saying it's another bet, and then suggesting that not so much from royal lineage but from one of the families of the you know manufacturing sounds like it was a manufacturing town and they're mm -hmm. saying it's from one of the, the families there these same ideas keep going on and on we'll be back to our spring Hill jack stories in a moment is there something interfering with your happiness or that is preventing you from achieving your goals i think right now everyone's yeah facing a little bit of that <laughs> And sometimes we need help talking this stuff out. Just getting caught in the sort of feedback loop of the other scared people in your own house might not be the best answer. I think something more objective might be a better idea. So it's a good time to have a service like BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs. They can match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. Something we could all use right now, I think. BetterHelp's available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. With other people. <laughs> <laughs> who may or may not be wearing masks. 
It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available if you need it. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Strange Familiars listeners can get 10% off. You can go to betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com slash strangefamiliars. You'll get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced professional counselors at BetterHelp. So almost a year later, in January of 1884, Springhill Jack appears in Darlington. This is from the Northeastern Daily Gazette, January 28, 1884. Springhill Jack in Darlington. For some days, the wildest rumors have been afloat in Darlington regarding some mysterious being who has been playing antics in the ghost line for nearly a week. First, he was seen in Nisham Road, then he paid a visit to Eastbourne, and latterly, he was honored Rye's car with his presence. It is said that he is on a visit to various towns in the north. From a simple ghost, he has developed into a kind of supernatural being. He can stride several yards at a time, leap hedges and walls like a greyhound, and one person actually declares that he has darted across the Tays at Yarm. Sorry. <laughs> at any rate, whatever he may be, the result is that in Darlington, women and children scarcely dare to move out at night. Owing to the nervous condition of several timid females in Darlington, our representative there has been led to make some inquiries concerning the ghost. And as a result, we can assure all those who are in trepidation on the subject that the wild rumors now afloat have more existence in the imaginations of persons than in real life. The most difficult thing our representative had to do was to find any person who has really seen the ghost. After about an hour's inquiry, he at last found the man he sought. This was Thomas Nellis, a workman at the bridge yard in Nisham Road. Nellis informed him that on going down the Nisham Road, he distinctly saw a man in white standing near Mr. Tree's gate. On Nellis saluting him, he received no answer, and Nellis at once walked up and the ghost took to his heels. He thinks the white part of the performance is either produced by a light or a white sheet. At any rate, the moment Nellis approached the white disappeared, and he distinctly saw in the dusk a man about six feet high. He chased him down by foot, but the ghost was very fleet of foot, and by the time he reached the bottom, Nellis was forty yards behind. Nellis is of the opinion that the man is assisted in running by some mechanical apparatus fixed to his boots, enabling him to take strides of immense length. One thing he's certain of, that is so that it is to be hoped that this announcement will dispel the fears of those persons who are in terror of a visit from the Eastburn apparition. The ghost is not yet in the Darlington police cells, as currently reported, although it is expected he soon will be. Another bit of tech that allows him to take huge strides. So I guess he didn't say he was leaping, but he's making these huge strides. Not only that, even the description of the way the light was shining through the sheet almost made it seem as if he's trying to explain like a light anomaly or like a like a ghostly presence. Like how would you get off like a just a white yeah, light? Yeah, and it made it seem like the ghost was there and then it wasn't and then he saw this guy. Yeah. And yeah, it was a pretty strange report. So many timid females that can barely stand leaving the house. <laughs> I feel like one of them now. So in January of 1885, a year after that, papers start reporting a Springhill Jack of a different nature. And rather than being dressed as a ghost, this was just a six-foot-tall man who apparently liked jumping on people's backs. Well, that was his thing. This further shows the term of Springhill Jack moving away from describing only ghosts or only people costumed as ghosts, and there's being applied to these other kind of miscreants, especially people who are assaulting other people in like odd ways like jumping out and scaring out something yeah. for whom the act is more about something other than just a robbery or an assault so later in 1885 there's another ghost who starts making its appearance around derby and a note in here that talks about new zealand yeah that is a neighborhood in derby okay that is not the country of new zealand all right this is from the derby mercury september 2nd 1885 a derby ghost by one who didn't see it. For the past few days, or rather nights, the neighborhood of New Zealand, Derby, has been greatly moved by the appearance of a ghost. And as there is a dearth of political speeches and other interesting news just now, I hasten with great pleasure to record the fact for the benefit of your readers. I have not been to interview his ghost ship myself, 
because the time for his appearances is too near the witching hour of the night when graveyards yawn, etc. And being a person of great regularity of habit, I invariably retired to rest shortly before that hour, and all the ghosts in the world wouldn't induce me to break my rule. But like Lord Dundreary and his brother Sam, I have seen other people who have seen the ghost, and have diligently investigated the results of their observations, and I have come to the conclusion that at last I have found a case deserving the most preserving consideration of the Society for the Prosecution of Psychical Research and the police. The place most frequented by my friend, if he will allow me to call him such in these days of bad trade and no news, in the vicinity of Stepping Lane, which, as everybody doubtless knows, is a narrow path leading from the Adoxeter Road to a new colony of houses which has been built up in the vicinity of the railway servants' orphanage. It is a most favorable spot for a ghost, one side being a tall wood fence bounding the orphanage property, and the other a hedge backed by tall, umbrageous fruit trees which make a sort of roof over the footway and keep out the light in such a way that one has only to walk up there in the dark and think of ghosts to enjoy that particular sensation known as the creeps. <laughs> At the end of the lane are several very funny big stones, which to the vivid imagination savor of the ruins of the dungeon keep or of a moated grange or something of that sort, whereas we are taught by Christmas magazines, ghosts are always certain to be found. So much for the locus in quo, except that it should be here said that there is a very convenient field which runs down from the stones I have mentioned to Slack Lane and the Great Northern Railway. And now for the manifestations. I cannot ascertain exactly when the apparition first appeared, but I find he, I suppose this ghost is of the masculine gender from the way he jumps, has appeared to several people, some of whom are quite convinced of his spiritual existence and antecedents. An elderly lady, a laundress by profession, assured me that she was sure it was a blessed ghost. It was tall, about six feet high, she said, and she saw it as plain as I could see anything, right at the end of the passage in Fowler Street. It was covered all in white, and a sort of light, just as when you rub a lucifer match on your hand in the dark, so to speak, lit up its features. It was a very pale face, but although there were no whiskers on it, my informant was sure it was a man's. The figure seemed to be standing up, she said, just a little bit off the ground, and the hands were clasped as if the ghost was saying its prayers. It had a hat on, she added, but there was a sort of big gash on the forehead, and she was sure something dreadful had happened. As soon as she saw the ghost, she durst go any further for fear, and when she looked again, the blessed thing was gone. Passing from the old lady and her childlike faith, so rare, alas, in these materialistic days, I happened on a horny-handed son of a toil, a striker at the station. He did not believe in ghosts, he said, but he had seen whatever it was, and his private opinion was that it was naught but an old white hulse. I would not venture to tire your readers by relating all the theories I have heard, but I cannot refrain from adding one or two other experiences. One morning this week, about one o'clock, a telegraph messenger, who was returning home after being on night duty, saw the ghost under a tree, waving its arms inside its shroud in a very alarming manner, and he incontinently ran away shrieking fire and murder. If he incontinently ran away, does that mean he peed himself? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another eyewitness says the thing has the power of elongating or shortening its body at will, whilst a third who saw it jump clean over the hoarding at the back of the orphanage into the shrubbery, not a bad jump by way even for a ghost, for the hoarding is about seven feet high, says it has the faculty of pulling up its shroud with strings and wrapping around its neck like a scarf. A fourth reckons it is only some fool playing hanky-panky tricks to frighten women and children, and would only like to catch his ghost ship some night when he, not the ghost, had a good stout stick in his hand. And a fifth guesses it is somebody after the pears and plums in the stepping lane garden. I offer no opinion upon the various theories propounded, but I rather like the old lady's best thinking that even a ghost would be a rather nice sensation in this ancient but occasionally sleepy burrow. The spirit of investigation is certainly alive in the neighborhood of New Zealand, and I am credibly informed that nightly hundreds and thousands, hundreds and thousands, that's what the man said, congregate about Stepping Lane in order to catch a glimpse of this spirit of the night, and that occasionally they are assisted by the police. But candor compels me to admit with sorrow, for as I said, I like the ghost theory that when the latter are present, our friend keeps out of sight probably out of regard to the feelings of the chief constable and the borough magistrates, which, to say the least of it, is very suspicious. So despite the superhuman qualities associated with that ghost, which is known as the Derby Ghost, apparently. 
Two humans in the area were brought up on charges in October of 1885. That's about a month after that article appears. One of these ghosts was charged with breach of peace when he drew a revolver on a man who, when confronted with the ghost, proceeded to pummel him. Another boy, disproportionately, was sentenced to a month of hard labor for apparently putting a sheet over his head and scaring pedestrians. Which I think I'd like to add is uh, more than the guy who actually jumped out and assaulted people, right? Remember in that other article? (laughs) Yeah, that was in the last episode. It is very disproportionate punishment. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1886, Springhill Jack appears in Wales. This is from the Cheshire Observer, January 16th, 1886. A Welsh Springhill Jack. A Wrexham correspondent writes, A ghost of the orthodox description, very tall, dressed all in white, with a face terrible to look upon, and possessed of the most extraordinary powers of progression and re- retrogression, has been causing the utmost excitement and alarm for some time in the district lying between the Wrexham Cemetery and Exlesham. Several women and children to whom the ghost has appeared have been so seriously frightened that some of them are still suffering from the shock. One woman, while returning from Wrexham Market, was confronted by the ghost and so terribly alarmed that she dropped her basket containing groceries and ran shrieking away. She was in such a pitiable state, in fact, that she was obliged to keep her bed for several days. One night, when it was very dark, the ghost suddenly appeared in front of the tram car which runs between Wrexham and the Rose, and frightened both horses and passengers. An attempt was made to capture it, but it disappeared over the hedge and across the fields with amazing rapidity. Upon another occasion, it was followed to a corner of a field where there is a pool of water, and here it was fully expected that it would be captured, but to the surprise and alarm of its pursuers, it cleared the water with a bound and disappeared. So fearsome a name, in fact, has the ghost already obtained for itself, that even the men working in the neighboring culleries are chary of going to or returning from their work singing, and make the outward and homeward journeys when it is dark in gangs. It's needless to say that numerous attempts have been made to capture the cause of all this hubbub, but hitherto without success. One daring spirit has been ghost hunting upon his own account, armed with a big stick and accompanied by a large dog, which would make very short work of a ghost, if only he could once get it within biting distance. But so far the efforts of this venturesome ghost hunter and his canine companion have ended in failure. So another leaping... I guess it cleared the water. It doesn't say how large the water it cleared was, but... Well, it's whales, so there's it's just endless ponds, isn't it? <laughs> so we're up to 1888, which is an important date, which we will get to soon. On January 23rd, 1888, the Courier and Argus reported Springhill Jack's return to London. Springhill Jack again. The neighborhood of Kensal Green, Queen's Park, and Kilburn Lane has lately been frequented by a nocturnal visitor attired in a peculiar garb. This modern Springhill Jack is described as being habited in what are commonly known as black skin tights. On his head he wears a black skull cap, and his face is presumably chalked, while his eyes are encircled by a couple of black rings. He devotes himself to frightening women and children, with whom he has had a certain success. Men he evidently abhors, at least he carefully avoids them. Vigilance committees have been formed to watch for him, and he may yet make his appearance in the police court. So that's a particularly interesting outfit. Yeah, he's like the Crimson Ghost or something. 
So is that area close to any other notable areas? Like where is that part of London? Does it, that last? Yeah, that was the Spring Hill Jacks return to London. Do you think it could be anybody of note just sort of testing their metal? I don't know. That seems a little innocent. The the black tights and yeah, the, and it the almost makeup. seems very dramatic. Like yes. it's more about the drama than it is like it, like if you wanted to just kind of skulk around and hurt somebody, you wouldn't be so theatrical. I tend to agree. I tend, I, I think I know what you're getting at. I, I don't feel like that's in that person's wheelhouse. So, in 1888, then, this is what we've been working up to. Something happens which changes the tone of Spring Hill Jack going forward. Bodies of murdered women, some of them horribly mutilated, start showing up around the Whitechapel District of London. And this murder gets another Jack name. And when everyone's heard, it's Jack the Ripper. There is at least one paper that does refer to Jack the Ripper as Spring Hill Jack. Is that you think where the uh, where the ed, like the etymology of that of, name of is? Jack the Ripper? I'm not. It it seems like Jack is some. You know, at this point, is that it, like it, the equivalent it, of mate? Or is well, I mean, I feel like at this point, Jack is a term they're using for someone who commits assaults on people. Oh, okay. You know, and this is Jack the Ripper, but they the paper referred to him as a Springheel Jack, no caps, so lowercase Springheel Jack. So they're kind of. One who is like a Spring Hill Jack, using it as a descriptor as opposed it, to a person. Exactly, yeah. But it's interesting that Jack the Ripper does get, at least at first, kind of thrown in with this Spring Hill Jack phenomenon. I like what happens to the sort of Spring Hill Jack phenomenon in the wake of Jack the Ripper, because Jack the Ripper is a terrifying thing. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a terrifying moment in history, and in particularly the history of London. And I think it's hard looking back on it to sort of capture that for us what a terrifying thing this must have been particularly to the people in Whitechapel mm-hmm. these women just start turning up and they're horribly mutilated I mean they're, they're yeah I mean among the the what they call the canonical five of the people that were murdered there there's so much other crime some of which could have been related to Jack the Ripper and some is just related to the fact that it was hideously violent oh yeah yeah it was it was and I mean, Jack the Ripper is another show. We may or may not ever do that because I'm frankly horrified by the Jack the Ripper crimes. I'd rather deal with ghosts than... Let Alan Moore have Jack the Ripper. (laughs) He did it better. But in the way that, you know, the spiritualism comes in Mm. in the 1800s, and there's this idea, this, this wonderful idea of the ability to contact the dead. And it kind of ends with World War One. You know, I mean, not specifically, it continues on afterwards, but the, the sort of movement of spiritualism is never as strong after World War One, I, I think, because so many people died mm-hmm. and it became very real. You know, all of a sudden death is this very, very real thing that happens on a mass scale. Or it, is it the fact that, I mean, like death has always been something that people have dealt with probably much more than we deal with it today. But is it that science has sort of failed them because we've now we've built some some things that will ultimately be our own destruction as far as like the war machine in general yeah well i mean i'm sure all of that it's like it's a literal loss of humanity like we're just become you know this is a time when war changes to this really nasty like i mean there was still i don't want to say like rules to war yeah but, but you know once you get like mustard gas there that's a whole nother level oh yeah of, uh, yeah i mean tanks change everything mustard gas changes everything the, you know chemical warfare trench warfare changes everything it's a brutal thing it's just a sort of you know it's not a hard and fast rule that spiritualism ends with world war one but i just see that as kind of like the thing that sort of drains a lot of the sort of mystique and and so forth out of spiritualism uh, with this great mass of of dead people again it, death just becomes this very real thing that and probably the spanish flu mm-hmm. coming at the same time people are confronted with a lot of death very quickly in the same way that that reality of world war one that wave of death of, of world war one and, and the spanish flu and so forth takes the gas out of that i think jack the ripper kind of takes the gas out of this spring hill jack thing mm-hmm there's no no longer this idea of like like an underlying frivolity and good nature just wanting to scare people and it, yeah it becomes very real mm-hmm. because of this and 
I mean, there are some prowling ghosts that, that appear afterwards, but this is the sort of beginning of the end, I think, of the phenomenon. By the 1890s, demon jumpers begin appearing in newspapers. Demon jumpers? Demon jumpers. And these are circus and variety show performers who make astounding leaps. Some of these guys are jumping over horses and stuff as part of their oh, act. Oh, okay, okay. One of these guys, by the name of Rushton, also goes by the name of spring Jack. Oh, nice. So he's a circus performer, and he's taken the name of spring Jack. I would say that that's a very common thing, particularly in the circus world, is to find something that has a vague amount of familiarity and capitalize on it. Like, if your name sounds almost like another circus giant, it's better than coming up with a brand new name and striking out on your own, because someone, you can kind of build on the personality that goes along with the name. Well, as we'll find out, too, the sort of attitude about spring Jack, while they're looking back on these stories, kind of changes. As we're looking back from, you know, 1900 or so, so not much happens, you know, again, in the wake of Jack the Ripper, as far as what I could find. There's not a lot of these prowling ghosts anymore. It's kind of like... There are murderers afoot. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of a little bit different after that. But in 1897, another spring Jack must have been prowling the island of Guernsey, as one Mrs. Cyril was offering a five-pound reward in the Guernsey Star for information on persons spreading the rumor that her husband was the local spring Jack. <laughs> so I couldn't find any... <laughs> She's trying to clear artists. his good name. Yeah, exactly. Then on November 15th, 1898, the courier in Argus tells of a prowling ghost around Dundee, Scotland. The doings of the ghost, which has been visiting the west end of Dundee during the past fortnight, were yesterday the topic of considerable talk. According to the many stories told, it appears the white-robed apparition has been holding hijinks in the vicinity of Clarendon Park nurseries and other grounds in that locality. From inquiries made yesterday, his ghost ship has made an incursion to near the center of the city and has been seen at the foot of Thompson Street, where a most amusing incident took place to the discomfiture of a worthy lamplighter. This servant of the municipality was in the performance of his duty passing the foot of Thompson Street, when he suddenly decried the white-robed figure standing by the side of a lamppost. His courage deserted him, and for a moment he stood breathless, but realizing in a few minutes that he was confronted only by flesh and blood, he assumed a threatening attitude and determined to use his stick on this midnight marauder. But the figure did not apparently wish to come to a closer quarters. In fact, on the lamplighter making a move that the man in white did ditto with considerably more agility, the lamplighter now opines that he saw a cloven hoof. Mm. turning the corner of the street and disappearing in the midst. But considering discretion, the better part of valor, he made no effort to follow. Shortly afterwards, he met a brother lamplighter to whom he told the story much in the same terms it is given here. Together, they made a hasty observation of the district, but failed to find any trace of the apparition. In the early part of the week, Clarendon Park Nurseries had, it would appear, have been chosen as the venue of the nightly stroll, but here the experience was more exciting. A bray leads to the center of the nurseries, and along the footpath there runs a little bank of trees. In the evenings, a lad MacDonald tended the greenhouse fires, and on this particular night, along with his companion, was proceeding to perform this duty. On coming to where the bank of trees terminates, the youths were startled by a white-robed figure motionless below a tree. They had gone too far to beat a retreat, so they bustled past as quickly as possible. After performing their work, the lads were returning and were even more astonished to find the figure standing in the same place. They scampered up the roadway and reported the matter to Mr. Gossard, the proprietor, who, however, laughed at them. A few nights later, however, the same youths were proceeding towards the greenhouses. This time they exercised more caution, with the same result, for on nearing the end of the trees they observed the same strange figure in almost the identical spot. Returning to the house, they told the gardener, who, along with another gentleman of the name of Beats, endeavored to lay the ghost. One of the men proceeded through Binrock to cut off the retreat, and the other made his way through the nurseries. On observing the fresh arrivals, the ghost turned tail and made for a thicket running down the side wall, dividing the nurseries in the estate of Binrock. Mr. Grossard and the youths followed in hot pursuit, but their quarry seemed to know this locality well, and was able to make his way through the thicket without diminishing speed a feat which the gardeners are confident could not have been accomplished by any stranger, as the branches are interwoven in a manner rendering speedy passage well-nigh impossible. Arrived at the wall, the man in white leaped over it in the Spring Hill Jack style. On reaching that part of the road, midway between the wall and Binrock Lodge, 
The frightened visitor leapt as if to clear an obstacle in the shape of a barbed wire. Therefore, the apparition redoubled the speed at which it was proceeding, and soon left Mr. Grossert, Mr. Beats, and the boys behind. The purpose is evidently to frighten younger children, but since the adventures recorded took place, a sharp lookout has been maintained at night, and in the event of a return, visit a reception worthy of the occasion will be accorded. There's a slight change in tone to the articles, I think, now, as regards the ghost. People seem a little less scared of men in strange costumes, I think. Yeah, and there's kind of this nod to it's got to be somebody in the neighborhood, somebody who knows this area too well. Yeah, exactly. Another spring Jack appeared in Neath, Wales. The newspaper article appeared the same day as that previous article. So, November 15th, 1898. Reports have this spring Jack tearing open a servant girl's dress and bruising her face, chasing other girls. He knocked another woman to the ground where he told her after she screamed, If you don't stop, I'll gag you. But if you're quiet, I'll let you go. So this seems to be one of those cases of a man bent on sexual assault just being called spring mm-hmm. Jack. Except for the note that this spring Jack would also... Frighten women by tapping on kitchen windows, making unearthly cries, and leaping over garden walls. That's a quote from the Western Mail, Cardiff, November 15th, 1898. So, even though it appears to be just a natural guy in a costume, again, he's making these huge leaps and stuff. So, it's a little bit of strangeness put in there. So by 1900, there's sort of this popular memory of Spring Hill Jack as they're looking back on the incidents. And they've sort of folklorized him into an almost Robin Hood-like character. Remember, I think, I don't know if this is episode one or two, you said these are almost like early superheroes. Yeah, 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 because they're in... They have cloaks for no apparent reason. That was very prescient of you because the illustrations, a lot of the illustrations of the time in these sort of penny dreadful stories of Spring Hill Jack that came out, He's very much clad in this sort of late 1800s version of a superhero outfit. You know, he he had a sort of a a shirt with bones on it, you know, Mm -hmm. like a a skeleton bones on his shirt and a cape. And he's jumping and, you know, doing these very superhero-like things on the covers of these. I guess they would be called Penny Dreadfuls. So this is an article from Lloyd's Weekly, February 25th, 1900. At the beginning of the year 1838, rumors ran through the metropolis of persons having been met and terrorized by a singular being inhabited in a big black cloak and wearing a hideous mask. By February, the matter had become serious, for Springhill Jack had taken to robbery, and Mr. Clinch, a banker and moneylender, was robbed by him at five o'clock in the afternoon of 700 pounds in gold, and notes in the Tottenham court read, Jack, escaped by a series of marvelous leaps and bounds that carried him over all obstacles. On February 26th, complaints were received at all the metropolitan courts of outrages and robberies committed by the Terror of London the night before. It was noted, however, that only wealthy persons were robbed, and that, in many instances, Jack had performed generous actions. In Hyde Park, a poor woman was crying when the cloaked figure suddenly appeared before her and asked for the cause of the trouble. Greatly frightened, she stammered out that her husband was ill, her children were starving, and that certain relief that she had been after was refused her. The next moment, she felt herself seized and turned overhead and her outer skirt drawn up round her face. Her screams attracted several persons to her aid, and it was then that they found that not only had she suffered no injury, but that 14 guineas had been placed in her dress pocket. Springhill Jack continues his pranks for many months, amongst other feats recorded of him being that he leaped over the mail coach as it was coming down the Highgate Road. He was never caught, nor was it ever known who he really was, though popular opinion has it that he was a certain marquee notorious for practical jokes. So this is 1900, and it's completely changed. Gone are that cut hair and the torn dresses and the iron claws that were disfiguring women. Mm-hmm. And he's just this Robin Hood figure. He only robbed the rich, and he mm. was giving to the poor. And we have this totally different idea of, of Spring Hill Jack. This is like the rose-colored glasses version of... So it's very, very interesting how mm-hmm. it, it literally became like, like I don't, an urban legend. He became that, a superhero, mm-hmm. essentially. Like you were, you were absolutely right when you said that he's, this is like a superhero. He absolutely did, in, at least in some, you know, folklore and some popular thought. It's very interesting. None of those stories, by the way, were ones we read. Yeah, I like that. It's almost as if they made them up. <laughs> and also, I'm surprised the, the phrase, will flip my skirt over and give me 14 guineas, did not catch on. <laughs> <laughs> the marquee in that article 
mm-hmm. by the way, was a real guy. He was the Marquis of Waterford. And he was accused of like several Spring Hill Jack like pranks. And some people thought he was Spring Hill Jack at the time. However, he died in 1859 after falling off a horse. He got married. I think he moved from London to maybe Ireland or something. I forget. But he wasn't around for the whole of the 1800s. It couldn't have been him that accounts for many of the Spring Hill Jack yeah, Exactly. Accounts. He died of a very non Spring Hill Jack death of falling off a horse. <laughs> they ate like a bad mushroom. <laughs> so Spring Hill Jack has gone from, you know, prowling ghosts to human monster, back to prowling ghosts, and eventually to sort of a Robin Hood figure. In the same way that um, it's usually the victors that write history. I think it's <laughs> sometimes the, the newspaper men who are looking for a good copy are the ones who uh, write down the, the new history. Yeah. Do you think there was a sort of turn of the century optimism that went into that sort of recharacterizing him? Oh, instead of focusing on Jack the Ripper? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do feel like Jack the Ripper really changed the tone of the story. So and there's a lot less after Jack the Ripper and the, and the tone has changed. It's either get this guy arrested, get him out of here. He's no good. Or it's just like, look at this goofy guy with a sheet over his head. The tone really changes after Jack the Ripper. As it would. Mm-hmm. I mean, From something sort of theatrical and non-threatening, just scary, to mm-hmm. something fundamentally frightening. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly Jack the Ripper was. Some people brought up some other interesting things. This is going to be the end of our Spring Hill Jack series for now. Did you see one last week? (laughs) (laughs) I did not. I have no Spring Hill Jack experiences. However, some people brought up some very interesting things, some listeners. Some people have said that certain people have noted Spring Hill Jack after the appearances in the UK starts making appearances in New York and Boston and other places in the United States. Oh, this idea that he just hopped a ship. And that's why he's not in this area anymore. Hopped anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> and he, now he's just resurfaced in America. Possibly. So we have some digging to do. We'll see if we can find those stories. Other people have pointed out the similarity of things like a few years ago, I think in the early 2000s, there was something in India they were calling the monkey man who was jumping on people and scratching them. Sounds very much like spring Jack. It sounds like someone who has rabies. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. So there are other avenues to pursue as regards this topic, and we will dig in. But for now, this is going to be the end of our Spring Hill Jack coverage for now. Except for you're going to continue wearing the blue velvet cape. I'm wearing the cape (laughs) and the spring heels. That's my new look. I think spring heels are in for 2020. Yep. Get yours today. Tim, if I start today, how many days will it be until I have a perfect puppy? The perfect puppy for you <laughs> is really what we should we should highlight. And one of our listeners made the comment, and they said, you know, a rescue puppy mm-hmm. can also be a perfect puppy. You don't have to have a puppy from a breeder or, you know, pay a lot of money. And absolutely, a rescue puppy can be a perfect puppy, and rescue dogs can be perfect dogs. And I'm absolutely sure... Tina and the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy staff would agree with that. But I think the idea is to make the perfect puppy for you and make you perfect for your puppy. It's Mm -hmm. about relationships with 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. It's a relationship-based approach. They help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. (laughs) At 90 Days for the Perfect Puppy, you can find it at sithappens.us. You look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. They have online sources, video lessons. They have a secret Facebook group you can join and talk with other 90 Days subscribers. And they also have one-on-one options available. They will help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods to make you and your puppy perfect for each other. It's 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. Again, sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. So, photo of the week is a tintype. I don't think we've offered a tintype as a photo of the week, which is sort of ridiculous. They're your favorites, right? Yeah, they're for, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Explain to everybody what a tintype is. Well, tintypes are actually um, made on a 
sheet of iron. It's like like rolled iron, so it's this yeah, it's thin really iron. thin. That's mm-hmm. why they're sometimes called ferrotypes. They start, you know, roughly late eighteen fifties, but uh, start to gather a lot of speed around the time of the American Civil War, and then they continue to be popular even like as souvenirs into the nineteen hundreds. So they applied photochemicals to the iron sheet. Mm-hmm. Is that how they made it? Yeah, well, it's like it's. It's actually just sort of like, um, basically like an amber type, but instead of being printed on glass, you're you're doing it on a sheet of tin. But this would actually be inserted in the camera. Mm-hmm. So this isn't made with a negative, in other words. No, this no. Ima- this image, is the this whole... iron, this piece of very, very thin iron was inserted in the camera with chemicals on it, mm-hmm. which make it light sensitive. Yeah. And would have been exposed. And that's how this photo was made. Yep, exactly. So this, this was in the camera. So it's not a negative photography process. It's a positive, I guess. Mm-hmm. The first time we found tintypes way back when we first kind of started looking at old photos, I was amazed. They have a very unique look to them. I think of, of all the photos, they look the least like contemporary photos in a way. Mm-hmm. I probably saw those before I ever saw any cased images because those didn't even occur to me that they were actually photographs. Right, yeah. But this is sort of like the first kind of commercially available photography that everyone can afford. So that's one of the, it's, it has a, to me a very kind of egalitarian vibe to it mm-hmm. in the way that um, amber types and daguerreotypes do not because they were something that people who had a little more means or had a very specific need would have filled. Whereas this could have been just like, I got this done to share with some of my friends. And of course, if you listen to our episode way back when on Blind Joe Parsons that we did, he was a tintype that we found. But we're offering this tintype today, and he is uh, dressed in an outfit which would put him about the time of some of these spring Hill Jack things, right? Yeah, when I looked at him, to to me, he was the one that had the most spring Hill Jack look to him. <laughs> he could have been. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. He could have been spring Hill Jack. He could have been spring Hill Jack and all over the place. <laughs> which, oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> Uh, but no, it's, he's really, really interesting. What I like about this photograph is that at first I thought it was an outdoor tintype that was taken by like an itinerant photographer where he had someone posing on the outside of a barn. But you can see two squares of light on the bottom of on the floor, which means that the skylight that, that the photographer was using, that's showing up on the floor. Oh, interesting. So he's actually inside. Oh, that's very, very interesting. So you had to stand still for an exposure of about, what was it? Well, you know, even even by the time most people are getting a daguerreotype made, it's really only like four seconds. But if you try to keep a pose even for that amount of time without moving at all, it's difficult. Which I'm wondering if that's why he's steadying himself on the chair to help keep himself. Well, I think that was sort of like a leftover convention from earlier photographers and because of portrait painting. Oh, okay. Okay. A lot of uh, conventions of uh, portrait painting just carried over into photography. Our first tintype, you can get it for $15. If you look in the show notes, you'll see a picture of the image. If you click that, it should take you to our Etsy shop. He's got an amazingly cool like bowler hat. Yeah, it's really, it's a cool photo. It's a very, very cool photo. Allison was showing me a selection of tintypes to choose from. And as soon as I saw that one, I was like, yeah, that's the one. I like that guy. You can see this photo and our other remaining photos of the week. There aren't many left, but we do have some from past weeks. There's a section in our Etsy shop photo of the week. You can click on that and see the different photos that are available. Thanks, everybody, for purchasing these. Again, I think it's a cool way to start a new hobby, collecting photographs, and to support the show as well. So thanks, everybody, who has been purchasing these. Before we go, I want to thank Maynard W. for his kind PayPal donation. That's always a huge help as well. We will be back soon with more Strange Familiars. And if you listen to other podcasts, you should hear Josh and I making the rounds promoting where the footprints end. We're doing quite the virtual press tour here. So you'll hear us on shows all around coming up. So lots of me out there, lots of Josh out there coming up. So more Spring Hill Jack in the future, but not in the immediate future. We need time to put more research together and so forth. And we'll and take a little break from yeah, Jack. Absolutely. We need, we need a Spring Hill break here. <laughs> so we need to kick up our Spring Heels and yeah. relax for a while as far as spring hill jack goes we'll be back soon with more strange familiars strange familiars could not happen without our patrons 
want to thank our patrons so much. If you like what we do and you want to help us continue making Strange Familiars, you can become a patron. You can check it out at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can see all the levels of support we have there. You can get things like t-shirts and stickers, copies of my books and music and so forth. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. But all of our patrons, no matter what level they're at, they get full extra episodes of Strange Familiars. We do at least one every month. Often we do more than one, but we guarantee that one full extra episode of Strange Familiars. And once again, we could not do Strange Familiars without our patrons. So thank you very much, patrons. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon and you still want to help, go to strangefamiliars.com. Look in the show notes under any episode, you'll see a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, even YouTube, like and subscribe, and by leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more, darkhollerarts.com. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can also join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group, and we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.